Hello, and welcome to Design is Everywhere, the new weekly podcast from the Design Museum. It's Thursday, August 6th, 2020. I'm Sam Aquilano, the founder and executive director of the Design Museum, and I'm joined by the amazing Liz Pollack, our vice president. Hey, Liz. Hi, Sam. We have a great topic this week. It's pretty much the core of why I started the Design Museum. We'll be exploring the notion of design as a creative problem-solving process and how designers step up to identify and solve the big social and environmental problems we're facing. We'll be welcoming a very special guest co-host, Pinar Gavench. She's the managing director at Sour Studio, an award-winning architecture and design studio that creates concepts that address social and urban problems. And we'll be interviewing a special guest, Marquise Stilwell. He's the founder and principal of Openbox, a firm that's creating better urban futures. Both Pinar and Marquise and their teams are amazing creative problem solvers. So it'll be great to dig into what this all means with them both. But before we get to that, Liz, what's coming up at the Design Museum? Well, we're super excited about how Design It Live is shaping up on September 19th. It's going to be this highly interactive virtual event filled with fun demonstrations, prizes, incredible designers, and some really cool silent auction items. We're also doing a fun goodie box giveaway to the first 200 people who take a selfie with a sign that says, I love design, and then posting it on social media. So if you want to learn more about how to get that free goodie box, just go to designitlive.org for details before they're all gone, because there there is a limited quantity. I also wanted to share that we hosted a really great virtual education program in collaboration with Autodesk, Digital Ready, ACE Mentor Program, and other organizations called The Future of Construction, in which teens attended a variety of webinars about design, architecture, construction, robotics, and more, and then were given a prompt to design around, and we'll be featuring their designs in our online gallery. You can check those out by just visiting our website and clicking on the latest in the menu. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. It's a cool program. Okay, let's get into this week's topic. Many people think of design and think, yes, designers create buildings, products, websites, clothing, vehicles, apps, playgrounds, and more. Design truly shapes the physical and digital world around us. And that was reason enough to start a design museum. But I've always been even more interested in how design as a creative problem-solving process can help address some of the biggest social and environmental problems we have. Like, how do we create a more equitable society? How do we improve educational outcomes for kids? How do we address climate change? And so on and so on. These are the thorny problems that we have to solve. Uh, To me and to us at the museum, design is all about solving problems, whether the problem is we need to create a product that does X, Y, or Z, or we need to ensure everyone has clean drinking water. To talk about solving problems using design, I'm excited to welcome our special guest co-hosts, Pinar Gavench, is a serial entrepreneur, having co-founded and led multiple award-winning diverse companies in design, fabrication, and technology. Since 2015, she is the managing partner at Sour Studio, an international award-winning architecture and design studio based in New York City and Istanbul. They they create purposeful and problem-solving designs in diverse typologies, industries, and demographics. She also serves on the board of Open Style Lab, a nonprofit with the mission to make style accessible to people of all abilities. She's a busy lady. Welcome to the show, Pinar. Thanks for having me, Sam. Such a treat to be here. Yes, happy to have you. And I should say that Sour Studio is your new name, the new name of the studio. Very new. Yes, as of like a week ago. So it's, uh, I, I love it. I think it's a better reflection of ourselves. And I hope this is going to be a very sour conversation. <laughs> Sounds good. 
All right, so to start things off, let's just get right into it. Why do you think design is a great way to approach and solve big social and environmental problems? I think design is a great tool to make it, first of all, accessible, right? It's because um, in order for us to address any problem, we need a big, diverse team of people with different backgrounds and abilities and professions and um, just even like education. So design suddenly could become the enabler, the language, the catalyst that can allow that team to work together, um, as well as conveying the outcomes of such research um, or analysis to the public to raise even further awareness or engage the public into the conversation. So in that sense, I think designers have a huge role in um, and responsibility in making that happen, really. So yeah. uh, not only given the times that we're in, but, you know, we always had problems. We will always have problems. And I don't think designers have the luxury to not address those problems. Yeah. Yeah. It strikes me right off the bat that so much about problem solving is just about communication and collaboration. And designers are so good at communicating both visually, verbally. Um, so it's a really interesting kind of lens to put on it that's purely like a communication <laughs> lens. Uh, but I'm curious, like, are there downsides to using a creative problem-solving approach? Like, is there places where it just doesn't make sense? Um, I guess it depends on the attitude because um, we've seen, and there are many, you know, designers, whether they're architects or fashion designers or graphic designers who are sort of in their, like, own ivory tower. So it's a little bit more, it's my point of view, it's what I believe is right, and... Um, you know, and just, you just have to learn to love it. Like there is that attitude. Oh yeah. Um, which, you know, we're very familiar with, especially <laughs> in the architecture wor world. Um, but that, that does create problems in the sense of making the profession irrelevant or distanced from the problems that are happening. Um, I believe there are firms, there are PR companies, magazines, you know, journals that are responsible of it. Um, it's funny, we, we have a um, podcast where we hold our like expert interviews sort of in public uh, to make it more accessible to all. And we sometimes get reached out by some blogs or, you know, magazines to, they want to feature the podcast, but they're asking, can you send us the episodes that are related to architecture? <laughs> Which, you know, on the podcast, we could be talking about, you know, climate change. We could be talking about children's education. We could be talking about uh, environmental psychology. How come not all of them are related to architecture? You know, so, <laughs> so I, I, you know, we get back to them saying all of them relate to our projects and therefore are related to architecture. I think that is the problem. You know, mm -hmm. I think designers' attitude or how they perceive the designer's role is uh, is becoming the problem because then they're isolating themselves. And frankly, then they're making themselves irrelevant. It's hard for me to be objective on this topic because, like, this is why I started the Design Museum. And I wonder if you can help me make this link. Everything that designers do in design is a problem already, right? Like, a building is a problem that needs to be solved. It's like a giant puzzle that involves... So many different people. Our last episode, we talked about designing parks, the number of government agencies that are involved. And it's such a thorny, like multifaceted issue. Yeah. But I've never been able to like make that connection for people to be like, designers are good at creating buildings, products, graphics, all of which are problems. 
and solving other problems that aren't buildings, graphics, and products. So how, how do we create that parallel? I think it's just recognizing that they are all buildings, parks, products, you know? So, you know, when, when you're can't, you know, approached by a client with a brief, like, okay, I need a multi-use, uh, uh, mixed-use property in Dumbo, Brooklyn. Uh, obviously, let's say I'm a developer, I want to make the highest profit. Um, so, you know, and I want to maximize my floor area, be very efficient, just do that. And when the architect, and for sometimes for survival mode, just do that, that is not addressing any other problem than the client's brief and need, right? But if we were doing our job, and, you know, I'm not saying this is easy, and as a, you know, young and, like, small studio, you kind of have to pick your battles, but right. I think the biggest thing we do is that, okay, if there are projects which helps you pay the bills, what are you self-commissioning to yourself on the other hand? If you yeah. are paying the bills, what are you trying to raise awareness <laughs> of? So I think that is more like our position. Like in that sense, we act more like almost like a incubator because we come up with our own commissions to do things. But every now and then you have a client who is more open to listen, or if you convince them with data, with facts and with trends into the future, they will be even more open to listen because no one wants to jeopardize something that they're going to invest in. Right. So when you're, if, and so if we're actually doing our job, we should be studying the area and inviting many, many stakeholders into the conversation. Who are the locals? Who are people that are passing by, but who are there to stay? Or who, who are the people who are slowly getting kicked out? Which is something that, you know, New York is not doing, obviously, very well, um, because we keep, you know, really pushing in gentrification. But if we were to do that, and nature is also a stakeholder. So if we were to listen to all the stakeholders, even in a mixed-use building that is residential and retail in the bottom, then you could still be addressing many issues. You can use this as an awareness piece, even if, even if it's by the art that you incorporate into the space. You can make a next level effort in accessibility or inclusion. You can, you know, do a stellar example of how a healthy building should be and or an environmentally friendly building should be. Or you can explore how can you be more proactive when it comes to wellness or uh, supporting the nature. So these are all responsibilities on us and kind of our job to, you know, at least try to convince the client. So I think it's our responsibility to do that extra research to really mm -hmm. be inspired. The self-commissioning is really interesting. For sure. Yeah, and that's definitely another way. Like, yeah, yeah. you can't find the project, create one for yourself. <laughs> totally. And even what you just said at the very beginning of all this, of the brief, and maybe that's something we need to put out there more. The brief is a problem statement. Exactly. That's what it is. And we never, we have a fancy word for it that no one knows what it means. It's called a yeah. brief. Yeah, and it's our role to reframe that brief, right? Yeah. Reframe the challenge. It's the designer's role to do that. And, you know, if we are educated in it, if we are practicing it every day, we can't expect the client to come with the most amazing brief ever that addresses all the problems right. in the world. Right, we gotta edit it. So how do designers do it, right? Like what makes this process different than other problem solving processes, like, like a scientific method, right? What's the difference? 
I think we can visualize it very well and in different mediums. And I think that sort of makes it more accessible. Like we collaborate with material scientists. Um, we're actually collaborating on a project right now with professors from North Carolina State who are um, who have an antimicrobial materials research. So it's sort of like prioritized post-COVID, obviously, and we're collaborating on a research with them on antimicrobial surroundings. And when I talk to them or when they send me relevant projects that they did or articles they published on the matter, I understand zero. <laughs> and I tell them I understand zero. Let's just accept that. Assume that I do not know what you're talking about <laughs> and I'm a five-year-old and then try to explain to me what you're doing. So, and then it's our role to sort of take that and sort of start interpret, like, what does this mean for products? What does this mean for our near surroundings or built environment? And then how can we make this visually more accessible? Um, because that information on its own is not right. And, you know, I don't think it's the scientist's role to do that. I think it's the designer's role to make it really accessible. So we have the means and the tools to do that. And then if we're not doing that, I don't know what we're doing, to be honest. <laughs> so, and that's, that's what I was saying. Like, we're kind of the enabler for that communication to happen. Because what if you were working in an international team and you have all sorts of language barriers? You know, it, this is not only in like science, we see this in finance, we see this even in climate change. Like, what does climate change even mean? You know, it's such a big word that I don't know if we're like, once you're posed by a big word, you don't even know what to do with it. It's like having a massive, like action item on your to-do list. <laughs> it has to be broken down into many, 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 many tasks. So we have to really make, like break it down not dumbing down, but like breaking it down to make it accessible and make create actionable items from it. And I think that really design enables that. I love that. So maybe you could talk about how, you know, you and your colleagues at Sour Studio identified and approached solving some of these challenges and like give us examples, right? Like let's walk through some of these. So we're very research driven as our mission is to address social and urban problems through our designs. But we also recognize that like we were talking about it, you may not have the opportunity in all your projects. You may pitch for it. We also have something called strategic foresight presentation. It's like midway into the project. We actually do another pitch to the same client, explaining to them why they need to do these. It's sort of like re reminding them, your goal is to make this project successful. This is how you should, how, how you can do it. So I don't think the pitch ends in that in that sense. Like you, just because you have the client and you have the project doesn't mean you should like go on and accept what it is. I think there's always ways, especially once you start building that working relationship with the client, there's an opportunity to um, do another try and how can we make this project better? I think it, we did a move that I'm really proud of back in 2017 and we decided we're going to open portion of our research process to public. And uh, we did that through the series called What's Wrong With, where we do panel discussions, which are really our ideation panels that we used to do with progress makers of the industry, but open it to public and especially universities, because we want to raise awareness, especially in young, younger generations, as we do always say, like there's no solution to any problem without educating the end user. 
So, and back in 2019, we decided to start a podcast also under What's Wrong With to feature some of our expert interviews also to make our research even more accessible. So I think doing those sort of show also show that, yes, we are doing this research and this is part of it. And it's not just our own opinion. We're also talking to experts and public and other uh, progress makers in the industry. Um, so that research and insights that we generate and our constant effort to reframing the problem that we see uh, sort of serves to not only pitching a project to a client, but also pitching midway, like I said, to sort of better the project. Um, but I do want to make it real. Like, I think, you know, I wish five years ago when we were started, somebody told me this because everyone's like, oh yeah, do the best project and aim high and, you know, designers shouldn't charge below this. But when you're like a new studio who's trying to make it, that's not a real conversation. I don't think so. I wish somebody had told me. So how I, how I future it is more like, if you have the projects to pay the bill, you should have projects. It's sort of like create your own, you know, balance scale. You should have your either self commissions or competitions that you do, whatever that is to that, that actually serve what you believe in and what your mission is. And then every now and then you have a client where you're lucky that will be on the same page with you or that will understand you later in the game that they need to do something bigger with what they're doing. So it comes in three tiers uh, in my mind. And that's how we were able to survive as a young company and then we're able to grow as a young company. So, so what big challenge would you love for Sour Studio to help solve? I would probably want to see like a challenge in a country that I don't even know, a very big social issue and sort of see how we would address that, which would probably be by like collaborating with a local team, you know, of diverse people and diverse backgrounds. But that would be a really interesting challenge for me, something uh, social and, you know, not necessarily um, uh, in the awareness of the public yet something that is deeply rooted in like some of the systemic issues we're seeing in the United States. Thank you so much, Pinar. My pleasure. Listeners, check out Sour Studio to learn more about Pinar and her team's work to design with purpose and build a better future, including check out their podcast as well. So you can visit sour.studio. And Pinar, please stay with us. We'd love to have you join our conversation with Marquise Stilwell from Openbox. If you like Design is Everywhere, you'll love our upcoming special event, Design Night Live. Join us on September 19th at 8 p.m. Eastern for Design Night Live, a Saturday night filled with design sketches, games, prizes, familiar faces, a silent auction, and more. During this interactive virtual event, attendees from all over will come together to celebrate design, community, and innovation. We'll be sharing the vision and impact of Design Museum Everywhere and hear from designers from around the world about the designs they can't live without. Join Design Museum on September 19th for a night filled with inspiring company, hands-on demonstrations, and incredible prizes. Tickets are just $60 and they include a year-long membership. Plus, Design Museum members attend for free. Get your tickets today at designnightlive.org. And we're back and we're joined by a special guest. Marquise Stilwell is the founder and principal of Openbox, the company that represents the culmination of his over 20 years of experience. His vision is people-centered, focused on improving the lives of people in the communities its clients serve. Whether through extensive business design work, 
Deep Resources for Design Research and Innovation, or FILM. Marquise, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. So glad to be here. We're very happy to have you. I'd love to start. You guys do such cool stuff. I wonder if you can tell us a bit about your approach to problem solving and and what Openbox is all about. Yeah. Well, thank you. Uh, I would say that Openbox Design is a, a platform that allows us to bring together lots of different people to what I consider create better conditions. Um, and our approach is people-centered, uh, regardless of we're working on a project that provides an outcome of something that is physical or non-physical. Um, it is all about the process of bringing people together. You know, we have the design firm. Uh, we also have a film company called Open Docs. And so we also dive deeper into storytelling as it pertains to artists and creatives. Um, but we talk about the environment. We've done films on the environment as well. Uh, we also have a venture arm where we're not only investing people, um, we're investing um, actually into companies um, and supporting them. And so constantly being involved where community um, sits and where people are is where you'll most likely find open box. I'd love to just hear some other examples of, of what you do within these different um groups our, our last project is probably a good example um, we were on the design team for the mlk library in washington dc it was a, a rebuild of Mies van der Rohe's last building we happened to also just finish the film the new bauhaus which tells the story of when the bauhaus left germany and went to chicago to eventually form the institute of design and so that film is, is currently being screened across the world. But we also, like I said before, it's about the people. And so really getting an understanding of Washington, D.C. and what that means for a city that's constantly changing. And so for us doing that work and understanding how do people who live, work and play every day in D.C. and call it home? This is where they go grocery shopping. This is where they walk their dog. What does that mean for them to have a place um, to feel like they belong. When you start a new project, what is your approach? You talk about you know humans being at the center of all of it, but how do you actually do that? The, the simplest way to say that is what we all do every day is it's to listen. And so our approach is to always go in and listening. Um, we'd never consider ourselves the expert um, they're the experts, and what we do is help facilitate um, their expert insights into tangible understandings that, again, start to allow us to apply them into a design. And so that can be as simple as a library for some people isn't a library. It's a community center, right? And so for us, listening to everyone saying, you go to the library to do what, right? And it's to use their computers, it's to do my taxes, it's to meet friends. And so when you get to a place where you move outside the current framework of it's a library to it's whatever that person needs and desires, then that's when you reach a higher level of listening. And that higher level of listening allows you to say, okay, how might we create better conditions for people to gather in a space that allows them to exchange information and ideas. 
But what happens sometimes we start to build a new library and we forget about the people and all we're focusing on is, is the traditional idea of what a library is versus what it actually is in a neighborhood and where people see themselves within this space, regardless of what you have above the door. I'm wondering what other elements of being a designer, being a creative problem solver, what makes designers sort of positioned well to do this kind of work? So we do design research and the big part of design research is this willingness to be vulnerable, um, this willingness to be curious, this willingness to not know all the answers. And I would say for us, uh, even having a film making arm to what we do is also been very helpful because this idea of storytelling and we, the way that we approach storytelling isn't about answering questions, it's about asking questions. And when you leave our film, we didn't answer anything. We actually pro provoked you to go do more, right? And so when it comes to our framework initially within our design research, it is us constantly provoking and pushing and asking bigger questions. And as we're engaging with our clients or we're engaging with our research participants, we're constantly going deeper because some people would say, no, it's a, it's, of course, it's a library. It's a book. I just use it for X, right? And what we would say, okay, but is it truly just a library? Does a library have to have a one use to it? It's really important for us to actually go in and help um, our clients and anyone that we're working with on the research side, the community, to reimagine how they're defining space. And we don't want to design to code. We don't want to de design to here's a permit and this is what the city. Now, do we have to rely on those for consistency and integrity? Of course we do. Uh, but in going in the projects, we want to make sure that we're designing for people. And unfortunately, most cities were not designed for people. They were designed for cars and stuff. And what we're feeling in a visceral way, in a very human way, that we're pushing back, what I would consider our, our, the living virus that we all have is how we're pushing up against this, this city itself. And for us, designing for better urban living starts with designing for how humans actually want to function together, not necessarily how do we get from point A to point B as quickly as possible. Yeah, that's not what life is about. Film is a medium where, you know, it's so universal, like we all understand it, but we can't all do it. But someone with such, you know, diverse expertise and background and knowledge in like executing such research for you, for you to Marquis to do it, um, I think it's so, so crucial um, because, you know, you would really, you know, you would understand I need to be there for three years and observe and talk to people. You know, I think that approach uh, is rare, um, but it's the best mean of storytelling. Like if you can do it, it's really, it doesn't get better than that. But for that to be done, done that genuinely is so rare. For us, how we're doing that on the design side is making sure we're embedding ourselves into neighborhoods a lot more. 
And so yeah, I just drove, I just drove a couple of weeks ago to Detroit, drove through Ohio down to Louisville, down to Nashville, and, and drove back up because I want to make sure that I get out and I see that I don't hide behind my privilege. And we all have it, right? But you have to put purpose to your privilege. And in doing so, you know, we are not necessarily frontline workers, but we are doing frontline work. And if I don't get out and see how we're living and how we're living with these changes, then how am I going to be a designer to actually talk to people and communicate with them? So I drove around different neighborhoods and walked around and wanted to see how people are adapting. What are the changes that are happening? What, what has become politicized? What does that actually mean? What does it smell like? How does it feel? What businesses are open? What businesses are closed? Uh, I think it's really important that uh, as designers, we live our work every day and we make sure that this is a living practice. This is not an absolute. It's constantly changing and evolving. And when we get stuck in the absolute, that we think that this can become some Six Sigma that anyone can do, you just check off the boxes, that's the death of design. And that's not what design was built to do. I want to talk about um, one of the biggest social problems we have. I loved your Medium post. Um, I want to read the whole title so that people can find it. <laughs> A note from Marquis Stillwell, Black designer and business owner to other leaders out there. Uh, thank you for putting that out into the world. I know like your first paragraph, you were like, yeah, I can't believe I'm writing this, you know, again, but I am glad <laughs> yeah. that you did. Yeah. And I wonder if you could share um, some of the stuff you, you had in that post about and going into how can design play a role in building a more equitable, anti-racist world? Yeah. I mean, first I would say the challenge with design is making sure that we're inclusive ourselves, right? If you think about, I'll use a simple metaphor like jazz, for instance, if we didn't have Miles and Coltrane and, and Black and people weren't allowed to play instruments, what would music sound like, um, right? And to yeah. me, that's the sound of design right now. And we're missing something. And so the, the first layer of this is that we need to be inclusive, not for the sake of me, Right. I mean, yes, I would love more people of color to have jobs and opportunities, but but it's it's for the sake of design. It's for the sake of the creative practice. We have to be inclusive because we're missing something. There's something that's not there yet. And then for us, also when we're going out and we're actually doing the work and we're representing the people, we live. We need a lot of different types of lived experience. Design is all about the lived experience. It's about getting out and seeing the world and playing and touching. And when you're bringing people in and you're hiring people, you don't want someone that all they've done is design, they eat it, breathe it, do it, everything. They have no other extracurricular activity. They've never traveled before. They just go to work. No, they're not going to be a great designer. Inevitably, that is individuals that probably don't look like you. Uh, and then the, the final piece of this is, is me saying that, Designs, we help to tell stories as well. And through our work, through what we do, we help to, again, when it comes to good design, great design, it actually allows people to see themselves and tell real stories. And so 
the, the challenge right now in this country is that we are empathetically out of shape and therefore we need to be, get in shape empathetically and understand what the other, that also requires white people to do their education. Um, unfortunately, this country has done a great job of miseducating many generations where we don't even know the truth about our own country about what it means for me to be who I am. So it's hard for people to relate to me and they think that, oh, this is just some caricature that I see on TV. Uh, do you have real friends that look differently than you? When you walk into a room, you know, who's on that? We need to over-index on everything that, we do, that we've been doing. Um, we also have a masculine problem when it comes to design as well. Um, particularly, particularly the architecture. Um, we we need to feminize, and and again, feminize to me. Just to be very clear. This isn't about soft colors, pink, and all. No, I'm sorry, that's not what I mean. What I what I am saying is that we need women at the table. We need their voices at the table. We need to make sure that we, and I don't even want to say a balance. We need to actually over index. We can't, we can't, oh, which is why I'm not a big fan of the word equality um, because at the end of the day, I don't think that when it comes to equal treatment, yes, but when it comes to pay and jobs, we need to over-index. We really need to do that because we are so out of line when it comes to women with voices, women in leadership and minorities in leadership that if we don't, it's going to take forever for us to, to find ourselves again. And so it is the role of designers to help lead that voice. We should not come in to make things shinier, prettier, and better. We should be the leaders at the table when the planning and thinking is happening first day. I feel like you're making me think about how just it's like almost like the marketing of what it means to be a designer. When we talk to young people about like why they get into it, we just need to really redefine. It's about like having as many experiences and talking to as many people. And I mean, any, any child would love to do that, right? Like that's like the dream job to get out into the world. So I feel like we need to start going back to education too. I think if you're unexposed, or haven't pushed yourself to expose yourself to work with different communities. And be, that may be a black community, that may be a person with a disability, elders, children, whoever are your stakeholders in your project, you can't really understand it all. Um, and, you know, I think, you know, what Marquise is doing in terms of even like driving through cities is such an eye-opening act. Just expose yourself, do a work and travel and work all around the world, like travel the world, like travel the country, read and watch documentaries like, you know, the new Bauhaus. I think like all of that is so, so crucial. So what other social problems need designers to really step up and work on together? You know, look, I, I don't believe that design is some magic pill or yeah, can, can save the world. Um, you know, for me, it's about creating better conditions. Uh, I never go into a project thinking that at the end of this project, I have solved X. What I do believe is that I've created better conditions to be surprised. And when you work hard to really recondition um, situations and circumstances, that's when the magic happens. 
because you really take you create better conditions for people to empower themselves and solve it themselves right and so a good example of that we did some work down in haiti um, down in port-au-prince and we were doing some design research the gender-based violence group um, was a group of women and we were trying to build a mapping system um, well, the designers from San Francisco and New York had come down and they were going through the process, which is what you do. And you're, you're asking people, okay, we're building this map. We need to get all the requirements for the map. Give me street names of, you know, places. And the women were perplexed. I was like, ah, street names. And then I, I, I stopped. I remember stopping and going, okay, how do you actually walk around this city? Do you look at street names? No one looks at street names. Right. Um, you look at this red door, you look at this house, you know, the neighbor lives here, there. You need to think about how do people actually live and then start designing with them, not for them, and then allowing them to take over. Right. And so what we did was to create, help them with the frameworks that we have to create better conditions that allow them to actually build the platform that for them so that they could understand and continue to iterate on that as well. That's what we do, all right? We come together. We don't build for you, we build with you. Okay, I've got one final question and it's for both of you. Um, what is your advice to designers and other creatives in terms of getting involved with social causes and lending their expertise in a constructive way? Help yourself understand some of the things that are going on around the world because we really need to reframe so many of the problems that we're seeing. Uh, so many issues that we're seeing in the world have underlying reasons, right? So, for that, to get an understanding of that, like I wish I did that more when I was younger, but if I had you know, the chance to travel back in time. Now I would actually ask more questions, really understand history from different perspectives. Don't take it like, you know, it's a religious study that you can't question, really question everything that you're taking and not from like single perspective, but all different stakeholders. Yeah. What I would say is that first of all, you're not a hero, you're a designer. Um, don't walk in as if you have superpowers. Um, your greatest superpower is your smile and you're willing to be open and to listen. Um, too many times we walk into neighborhoods and into situations believing that we're here to save people. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, people don't need you to save them. Um, in many ways, they need you to get out of the way. Um, and so sometimes we need to not show up. So, um, but I think from there, it's also auditing your books. What are you listening to? What are you reading? Um, are you feeding yourself um, with new information that's different than who you are and making sure that you're building your empathetic muscles? Um, too many times we walk into situations where we're just out of shape, right? We don't know. We, we, we haven't pushed ourselves. Uh, we haven't said, Hey, when's the last time I felt uncomfortable in my own personal life? And so for me, um, the practice of the work that I do is something that I practice every single day in my personal life. Um, the way that I expose myself, the things that I read, uh, you know, right now I'm reading a book by Bell Hook. She does a lot of work in feminism. And so for men, 
Um, we need to pick up those books. We need to do the work. We can't ask women to keep explaining to us how they feel. We need to go do the work. We need to read the books. We need to ask the question, the questions. And so it's the same thing when it comes to whether it's Black Lives Matter or anything, gender, you know, if you're you know, straight, gay, whatever you go ask, read the books, expose yourself to information. So then when you walk in and you're listening, you're not listening to be heard. You're listening for understanding. So a lot of times we go into situations as designers and we're just listening to be heard. We're waiting for our turn to tell them what we think should be done. But are you listening for understanding? When you listen for understanding, then you will find it. Thank you so much for being here, Marquise. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Appreciate you guys. This is fun. Yeah, listeners, check out Open Box to see how Marquise and his team create equitable solutions across multiple sectors, including food, public space, education, and more. Visit openbox.com. That's O P N B X.com. Now for our weekly dose of good design, where we each share an example of good design that impacted us or others in some meaningful way. Liz, kick us off. All right. So uh, I was speaking with a professor the other day who happened to tell me about uh, these hearing aids that connect to Bluetooth or through Bluetooth. And now may this, this may not resonate to everybody, but it did to me because I have quite a few people in my life uh, who use hearing aids and I'm extremely aware of their importance. Uh, so this idea that they connect through Bluetooth to phones or TVs or all sorts of other devices was, you know, particularly interesting to me. And uh, I think right now, too, with how much time we're spending on our computers and our phones and just in front of the TV and in general, like working from home and being connected all the time, that this innovation is, you know, it's really game changing. So while this, you know, this isn't brand new, it's been around for a few years and it's still developing um, to become more accessible, which I think is just really exciting. So, you know, I'm looking forward to seeing, you know, where this continues to develop and in the future. And I, I think it's a, a really important innovation. Awesome. That's that's a really good one. This week, I'm sharing something that I use pretty much every day. Uh, if you see me on my phone, I'm usually using this. It's, it's an app uh, for Mac, iPhone, and iPad. It's called Bear. It's an extremely simple note writing app, and I use it for literally everything. Anything I write, whether it's an email, a grant, anything, I write it in Bear first. And now, why do this? Uh, there's very little formatting in Bear, like just enough to just get your ideas down and it doesn't get in the way at all, right? So you can just focus on the content. I have this problem, I think, as a designer, like no matter what software I'm using to write, like I immediately get bogged down with like how it's gonna look. Is it gonna fit on one page? Is it going to be bold here? Are there gonna be headings? And it just, it seriously paralyzes me for writing. Uh, so I, I use Bear and it kind of just frees me up uh, the other nice stuff is it, it syncs across Mac, iPhone, and iPad. So I might start writing something like in bed in the morning, <laughs> wake up and just start writing it. Uh, and then I can continue uh, writing it on my computer like once I, you know, get, get to work. Uh, and it's super easy to search. So I have like every single thing in Bear, like weird numbers I need to remind myself of. Sometimes I just copy entire emails and just paste them into bear because then you search and you can find them like so so easy 
Uh, I even track my to-dos in Bear. Okay, Pinar, you are up. So I think one thing that really hit me in the, I guess I'm going to say the past few weeks, I wanted to share a recent one, um, was that, so now our studio is working with Hey Mama to uh, rethink work from home for moms, uh, especially post, well, during COVID life, we it sort of got prioritized in our research uh, list in terms of how can we create more um I guess collaborative work environments at home because most of the stuff that we see out there that are recommending parents on how to work is like very not inclusive of the children's opinion. And so during the research part, we actually are collaborating with Openbox and we did a diary studies with seven moms. And one realization we had was um, children actually found this gesture and for people who are not going to see this right now is the pointer finger, not the other one, the pointer finger, uh, you know, I, I guess like uh, shown at them, they actually were really offended by it, which is something that I had no idea of. I have a two-year-old when I'm trying to make a point of like something is dangerous, I realize I actually do this, which is apparently as they get older, it's offensive for them and makes sense. You know, if your spouse was doing this to you all the time, you would kind of be annoyed, right? But I didn't think of it before. So I was talking to someone who has family members in military and he was saying, you know, especially when talking to an international audience, because there might be language barriers and some motions may be offensive, they do something called the insignificant point. So instead of this, they sort of bring the other fingers together to that pointer finger and make their point like that in order to avoid any offensive gestures. So that was very, very inspiring for me and really showing us again that you can design the best surrounding for yourself, but it comes down to user behavior. I love it. Oh, thank you. That's such a good one. Thank you again to Pinar Gavench and Marquise Stilwell for joining us this week. We'll post some of the resources we discussed on our episode page at designmuseumeverywhere.org. Just click podcast. And remember, if you want to get your free Design Night Live goodie box, just go to designnightlive.org for details. And like I mentioned before, we are giving them away to the first 200 people who sign up and post a selfie with an I Love Design sign on social media. Those have been so cool. I'm starting to see them come through and yeah, they make me smile every time. Me too. Speaking of social media, uh, we can continue this conversation on there. So find us. We're on Twitter at design underscore museum. On Instagram, we're at design museum everywhere. And on Facebook and LinkedIn, you can find us by searching Design Museum Everywhere. And as always, subscribe to Design is Everywhere on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or wherever you listen to your podcasts, and give us a quick rating and review so that listeners can find our show. This episode was written by me, Sam Aquilano, and produced by Ryan Flom. We're edited by David Green, and our theme music is Orange Sunset by One Wave. For Liz Pollock and the entire team here at Design Museum Everywhere, thank you, and we'll talk next week. Bye, everyone.